0: our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time? The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, The Surrender of Christ. In John eighteen, as we speed through the Gospel of John, the first fourteen verses, John eighteen, verses one through fourteen. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. As we go through your Word, we learn about Jesus. We pray that you would focus us on Jesus this morning, that we would learn again of who he is and what he did and what it means to have our faith in him. Do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about Larry and Carol. Larry and Carol are a typical couple. They're trying to keep up with the rat race of modern life. And it's a typical morning in their house. It was Larry's turn to get breakfast and to get the kids off to school. He'd only had six hours of sleep But he figured that success in the 21st century demanded a premium from its participants. And a rising star like Larry didn't want to waste time sleeping. Larry went through the morning motions. He microwaved some instant oatmeal for the kids, got dressed, and headed out the door. And after he dropped the two younger kids off at daycare, he was alone with his 12-year-old daughter, Julie. She seemed upset about something. And finally, as they're riding in the car, she said, Dad, do you love Mom anymore? The question came out of the blue. But Julie had been building up the courage to ask it for months. And Larry reassured her that he loved Mom very much. He thought about why Julie asked such a question after all, since Mom went back to work. Didn't they have a new car and a new bigger house and new clothes for all the kids and Didn't the kids have a Wii and a PS3 in the basement next to the big screen, high-def plasma TV? And Julie had her own room now and tennis lessons. For Pete's sakes, didn't they vacation in Hawaii last year? Of course he loved Mom. Then Larry realized he left his briefcase at home, so he turned around, and when he pulled up to the house, there was a U-Haul in the driveway. And he walked in and found Carol packing. She said she needed some time and some space to sort things out. She was too tired, too stressed, too confused. How did things get so out of hand? And the question that Juliet asked just a few minutes earlier burned in his mind. Dad, do you love Mom anymore? And there's a problem here. See, Larry and Carol are Christian. But unfortunately, the forces at work in their lives are the rule, not the exception in Christian households today. And I would submit that way too often, they are the rule in our households as well. Take it one step further. Let me relay a statement that Patrick Morley, he's the president of Man in the Mirror, which is a national men's ministry, and a statement he makes at all of his conferences. He says, I don't personally know ten men whose marriages are working like they are supposed to. That's a pretty strong statement. I don't personally know ten men whose marriages are working like they are supposed to. And he says he has never been challenged on that statement. So, why had this happened to Larry and Carol? They couldn't answer that question. So, they went to a Christian counselor and started counseling, which is almost always helpful. And they saw the counselor both uh, separately and then together. And when Larry met with him, the counselor asked him if he'd had a Christian world and life view. And Larry was stumped. He looked at the counselor and said, I don't know what you mean. Well, the counselor replied, I know that both you and Carol are Christians, but what I'm asking is different. Do you have a distinctly Christian way of looking at things? In other words, when you have a problem to solve, a plan to develop, a priority to set, a decision to make, do you think about these things Christianly, biblically? In other words, do you have a Christian world and life view? And after a long pause, Larry said slowly, no. Now that you put it that way, I would have to say no. I don't think I do. Henry David Thoreau said that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Larry certainly did. Larry was a cultural Christian. He was pursuing the God he wanted instead of the God who is. And he sensed the need for God, but on his own terms. He suffered from the sin of partial surrender. This morning we've come to John 18 and the arrest of Jesus. This passage is commonly called the betrayal of Christ, and that's an important piece. That's what I originally entitled this, as your bulletin shows. But as they got into it, I thought it would be better if we called it the surrender of Christ. Because note this, Jesus was able to surrender to the soldiers because he first surrendered to the will of God the Father. And let's take a look at what he did. We start by seeing the confidence of Jesus, verses 1 through 6. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. We're looking at the confidence of Jesus here. For the last five chapters, Jesus has largely been talking privately with his disciples. And the privacy of the story ends here. There's a clanking of men and arms starting to shatter the hush of the night. There's quivering daggers of orange flame sta- stabbing the horizon uh, to the west of them as Jesus and the disciples watching the approach of the soldiers. They come from Jerusalem. They crossed the valley and they're heading up the Mount of Olives. And at the base of the Mount of Olives is an olive garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where they are. You can go there today. And if you're in the garden and you look back to Jerusalem and you look up to the east, you can't see much. But if you look to the west, the valley opens up below you. You can see quite a bit. The ancient city of David is down there, the original Jerusalem, and the men are coming from the west, so they can watch them approaching, coming up the hill with their torches lighting the way. And they would have seen this long line of flickering torches winding uh, up the hill, the high hills of Jerusalem, coming up the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and soon a procession of torches files into the garden. And the whole garden is awash with light that spills from the lanterns and the torches, revealing 12 suspicious-looking men. And the presence of both Romans and Jews, John is the only gospel writer to mention the Roman soldiers. The presence of them may be his way of indicating that the entire world is responsible for what's about to happen. And the torches and the lanterns and the weapons, that's an eyewitness touch. John, many years later on when he's writing this, can still see the scene unfolding before his eyes. You have to imagine it. Put yourself there. See what's happening. It's an incredible scene with lanterns and torches. The Roman soldiers and Jewish officials search to find Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And Jesus, the light, just stands there without pretense, without protection, and shines openly through the darkness. But those standing in the darkness don't even recognize him. The soldiers instinctively grab their swords, but they're quickly disarmed by the commanding voice of Christ. Verse 4, whom do you seek? And Jesus, it says, boldly goes forward to meet them, he didn't run, he didn't hide, he didn't fight. He met him face to face. And when they answered, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he, or more literally in the Greek, I am. Jesus answers them with the name reserved for almighty God alone. The divine name of God, I am. The name God chose for himself all the way back in Exodus when he met Moses at the burning bush. The name that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John when he taught about himself. John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. John 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I hope you never go to a funeral and not hear those words. John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. And now Jesus steps forward and without hesitation stakes the bold claim that he is in fact the Lord I am. The soldiers imagine they would be chasing down a fleeing peasant and instead find themselves confronted in the gloomy atmosphere of that olive grove by a commanding presence. And when confronted by this clear confession of who he is, the reaction of his enemies is to draw back and fall to the ground. You can just see it. Jesus steps forward and says, I am. And they step back and fall. And it seems clear, however, that John does not expect us to think of this as some sort of accidental tripping over their sword. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Rather, it seems to be an allusion here to Psalm 23, Psalm, or Psalm 27. Psalm 27, the first three verses say, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?' These men found themselves in front of a presence who overpowered them. In whatever way his presence affected them so powerfully, there's a physical reaction, a, almost a recoiling from the Lord. And it is certainly clear that John is telling us that the men who came into the garden to arrest the Lord were awed in his presence. And they continued on in their errand only with his consent. In other words, we have here virtually another one of John's signs, a public outward demonstration of the majesty and the divine royalty of Christ. These men knew by whatever means they knew instinctively and intuitively that they were before the presence of someone far greater than themselves. You see they didn't arrest Jesus. He arrested them his calm confidence in the face of impending death stops them in their tracks but because he'd already totally surrendered to his father's will he is able to surrender to them without fear verse 4 says that jesus knew all that would happen to him he's not surprised by them he's not scared of them He's able to submit to them because he's already submitted to the Father. And he's already told us that, hasn't it? Look at John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received. From my father. You have to get the confidence of Christ, the boldness here. He's being arrested. These are Roman soldiers and and other uh, soldiers and guards from the Jewish officials. The Greek makes it seem like there's a whole lot of them, it doesn't tell us exactly how many. If we learn anything from this passage, we must acknowledge not just the confidence of Jesus, but the control of Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 9, the control of Jesus. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus has to bring them back to the matter at hand by asking his question in verse 7, whom do you seek for a second time? And even though Jesus hadn't slept that night, he had to be tired, he never loses control. Jesus is in complete control. He's carrying out the will of the Father, and it was that will that would be done. For the soldiers, there's an instinctive, Intuitive recognition of the majesty of the man before them. And we see that often with soldiers in the Gospels. They're among the first to recognize the majesty and divinity of Christ. If you look at all the times he confronts soldiers, they know this guy is different. They recognize his nature and character as one as far above them. They did not, however, fall at the Lord's feet and beg His forgiveness uh, that they ever came on such an errand. They don't say, Depart from us, Lord, for we are sinful men. No, they recovered themselves. They continued with the arrest, and they dragged this man, before whom they had just been struck down by a power beyond their comprehension, and they drag him off to his death. And remember, if not the Roman soldiers, surely the religious officials knew all about Jesus and what he had done over the past three years. They knew of his mighty works and of his teaching. So when they were struck down merely by the force of his presence, surely we might have expected that they would have connected what happened to them there on the olive grove with all the rest of the stuff that Jesus had done. We might expect that they, at least they, would have caught themselves that they would say to themselves, what in the world are we doing here? Arresting the Son of God. Beg for his forgiveness, but they did nothing of the kind. And they finished their errand without hesitation. And it would have been without further incident, if not for the impetuousness of Peter. When I was little, I loved this part. I always thought this was the good part. Swords. You know, that's cool. But we get a contrast here. Contrast Jesus and Peter. Jesus is in control, Peter loses control. Somebody's calling me. It will have to wait. I don't know. I'll find it later. It keeps ringing. It's Very distracting. So we're going to look at Peter, specifically verse 10, the sin of Peter. The sin of Peter. Starting at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. It's all gotten to be too much for Peter. The Jews are working with the Romans. Judas has betrayed Jesus. The fact that Judas is standing with the soldiers is a physical demonstration of whose side that he was on. And It's just all too much for Peter. And out comes the sword as he lunges at Malchus. His sword comes down hard on Malchus' helmet. And bouncing down the side, lops off his right ear. And over Malchus's scream, you can just imagine hearing Peter yell, It's just you and me, Lord. Run for it, man. I'll meet you at the Jordan. <laughs> but there were dozens of Roman soldiers, which meant there were dozens of Roman swords that were ringing from their scabbards. And Malchus, in the middle, with his hand, where his ear is supposed to be and feels the hot blood pouring through his fingers and then a shout from the only one still in control stop no more of this put your sword away and then according to luke 22 jesus says but jesus said no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him It was Jesus' last public miracle before the cross. Jesus will not let sin overcome the situation. And although John doesn't make a specific point of this, he obviously knows that most readers of his gospel will not fail to remember uh, that after Peter struck off the ear of Malchus, Jesus put it back. Shouldn't we expect that Malchus at least would have stood up and said, men, do what you must, but if you think I'm going to have anything to do with the arrest of this man, you got another thing coming. But nothing of the kind happens. Nor did Judas catch himself seeing all these men on the ground before Jesus, seeing Jesus heal this man's ear. He doesn't say, what have I done? Here I am fighting against God. Lord, forgive me. Nothing of the kind. It didn't happen here in the Olive Grove. It didn't happen in the Garden Easter morning. It didn't happen on Golgotha on Friday afternoon. And it didn't happen, not really, throughout the entire course of the Lord's ministry as He revealed His divine glory time and time again to thousands and thousands of people who eventually rejected Him without so much as a second thought. How can this be? It's the question that confronts us and haunts us from the beginning of the Bible to the end. I mean, how could the Israelites, having seen the power of God with their own hands, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the pillar of fire, how could they have doubted God as they did, questioned his ability to bring them safely into the promised land, and at last rejected him as their God and Savior? And how could the people have seen Jesus' miracles, and every other evidence of his divine approval, and then treat him as a common criminal. How is this possible? The answer to that question is a large part of the secret of human life. The answer is that men and women are, from conception, enemies of God. Sin is first and fundamentally a spiritual hostility towards God, a spirit of rebellion against God. Men and women fear God. They're terrified of his judgments. They resent God. They chafe under his rules. But before all of that, they hate God. We've already heard Jesus say the same thing earlier in this gospel in John 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. I testify about it that its works are evil. And just as God made us to love others, sin makes us selfish and lovers of self. So we've been given breath to love God with all our hearts, and sin has made us haters of God instead. And sin is the principle in us, the power in us, the tendency in us, which reverses what ought to be makes us the reverse of what we were made to be, and so turns us from lovers of God into haters of God. And that hatred, as the Bible is careful to show, is usually masked. It can disguise itself as indifference to God or his will. It can take the form of zealous devotion to any and every religion except that which is revealed in the Word of God. It can take the form of a, a patronizing skepticism towards the claims of Christianity or a sneering scorn of Christian belief. The hatred of God can take a religious form or an atheistic form. It can express itself in strict morality or an open immorality. But lying beneath all of these spiritual states is a visceral hostility to the living and true God. People do not normally reject Jesus Christ because the evidence is simply not sufficient to persuade them. That evidence, evidence was overwhelming in the case of so many during the Lord's Day and during his ministry. Certainly in the case of these men. They don't refuse to believe in him because of intellectual honesty compels them to embrace some other philosophy of life. Ultimately, they reject Jesus Christ, because deep down he offends them. They dislike him because they're rebels against him and they'd rather die than submit to him. The soldiers didn't think this all out that night in Gethsemane, but that's what's at work. A built-in anti-God bias that made them so indifferent to what happened to him. Two dramatic things have just happened. Jesus spoke, they all fell down. I don't know how he healed this man's ear if he just reached out and picked it up off the ground or maybe it was lying on his shoulder. Picked it up and put it back on. I think that would get my attention. Maybe not. But they're indifferent. And like it or not, That's the Bible's teaching. That's the account that we have before us this morning. One of many illustrations of sin at work found in the Bible. And it is, after all, an obvious question here. How does this happen? If Jesus is the Son of God and proved it to mankind when he came into the world, why do so many refuse to believe in him and refuse to submit to him? The Bible is fully prepared to answer that question. There is something in people, something deep and powerful, that renders them averse to God. There is a malice toward God in their hearts. There is an anti-God bias deep within them that controls their thoughts and actions. Now, to be sure, they didn't think that, and they probably wouldn't agree um, with that account of themselves. They would probably take offense at being characterized as haters of God. Who am I, they'd say, to say what's in their hearts, to impugn their motives, to explain why they make the choices that they make. Of course, it isn't I who's saying that, is it? It's the Word of God that's explaining human life in those terms. And what's more, we Christians are the first, or should be the first to say, that one of the reasons that we know what the Bible says about human rebellion and hatred of God is true is because we have the evidence of it in Ourselves. Our own hearts persuade us that this is what sin is an anti God principle. And by God's grace, we've come to love God and to love Jesus Christ, His Son. But sin remains in us and will remain in us until we're finally uh, in heaven. And we can see very clearly what it is and what it does. Nothing makes a Christian more miserable. Nothing surprises him or her more often. Nothing is a greater disappointment than just this aversion to God that we still find within ourselves. Even knowing God and loving God and wanting to serve God as we do, the world accuses us of being hypocrites, of not living up to our words. And we can say with complete sincerity, the world doesn't know the half of our hypocrisy. You know, I've said, I think before, that somebody can go up to one of the elders and complain about me. And with complete honesty, they can say, he's way worse than that. You don't know half of it. And that's true. Here we see foolish men in an olive grove, recoiling, falling back from the Lord, and then proceeding to arrest him. And in that, we should see ourselves plain as day. We know as certainly as we know that we're sitting here in church, that Christ is the Lord, that it's wisdom to do his will, that his commandments are not burdensome, but rather are the way of life as it ought to be. We know that he loves us and deserves our love in return. And we know that in walking with him, we'll find fulfillment and satisfaction. And still, we turn away from him. Still we find ourselves drawn powerfully to what we know is wrong. What we know is displeasing to him. We find ourselves time and time again preferring the world to the beautiful majesty of Christ. We find that coming to God in prayer, which ought to be our delight, is like pulling teeth instead. And sometimes we just hate ourselves for it. We fear for our souls because of it, but still it's there. As long as we're sinners, as long as we have sin in us, there's always that aversion to God, that anti-God bias doing its ugly work in us. And oh no, we have no difficulty believing that men could instinctively and intuitively and powerfully recognize that they're in the presence of the Son of God and still proceed to betray Him as Judas did and to arrest him as the soldiers did, and to ignore unbelievable kindness and mercy as Malchus did. Because we do the same thing every day of our lives. Don't tell us that sin is not an anti-God principle and power in the human heart. Because we who love God and love Christ and want nothing so much as to love him with all we are, (coughs) Excuse me. (sighs) My throat just caught. It'll come back in a minute. I talk too fast and too loud the vocal cords stick together. We who love God and we who love Jesus and we won't want anything other than to love him with all that we are and all that we have. And still we find at times and sometimes it just surprises us there's a hatred of God that's still in there. We just want to get it out. Jesus knew that. He knew that about those men there in that garden. He knew that about his disciples. He knows that about his followers now. He knows that about us. And yet, he's riveted to his purpose. Verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me. Jesus was determined to go through what lay ahead. He would suffer and he would die, but not because of the activities of the soldiers or those who sent them. He would do it because it was the will of God. He had come to save sinners, and that meant drinking the cup that lay before him. Of course, that brings us to the last section here, the surrender of Jesus, verses 12 through 14. The surrender of Jesus. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. He is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I want to focus on verse 12. It says they arrested Jesus. Now, I don't know how you might have described the arrest of Jesus of Nazareth in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Had you been there to observe it, I don't know the perspective that you might have had. If you were Caiaphas, doubtless you would have reported it as a triumph. At last, we've got him. We've seized him. If you were the captain of the band of soldiers who actually made the arrest, you might just report it quite factually. 14th of Nisan, 11.30 p.m., arrested one prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth. Next. I do know, however that if you had been John the Evangelist, and if you had been led in your writing by the Holy Spirit as he was, you would have reported that from beginning to end, Jesus, and not his captors, was in complete charge of the situation. It was he who delayed in the garden while the arresting party was coming. It was he who went forth to meet them, thereby surrendering himself Voluntarily, more even over even at the very moment of his arrest. He showed his control over circumstances, for he demonstrates power towards the soldiers, grace towards his own disciples, and mercy to those who are his enemies. Total surrender to the will of God gives Jesus the ability to stand before his enemies and make a confident confession of who he is, knowing the cost of making this divine claim. And he remains in confident control of the situation when everyone else is losing control. And how can we as Christians live so that we're able to make a confident confession of Christ, knowing that sometimes there's a real cost to doing this? How can we remain in confident control of our own situations, particularly when our faith is being attacked and ridiculed? And yes, our situation is definitely different than Jesus' situation, but there are principles here that we can learn from the life of Christ and apply to the life that we live. And if there's not, are we doomed to live as Larry and Carol? Jesus was able to live victoriously at his darkest time because he totally surrendered to the will of his Father. Larry and Carol lived the lie of cultural Christianity because they suffered from the sin of partial surrender. There are always consequences to sin. And usually, not always immediately, but always inevitably, the consequence of this sin is that it brings pain. The pain of partial surrender. Larry and Carol didn't arrive at the brink of separation overnight. Years of living by the flesh rubbed each other the wrong way, like the building up of a callus. The friction built up a buffer between them, and then one day Carol decides to rip off the callus. The pain's still there. Larry and Carol suffered from the sin of partial surrender. And if you don't fully surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will eventually surrender to the world. It usually doesn't happen very quickly. Slowly, one small choice at a time, and we drift away. It might take years, perhaps the 15 years it took Larry and Carol. But when we fail... To fully surrender our wills to God, we wind up living the ways of the world. The spiritual calluses build up. And unfortunately, sooner or later, the calluses get ripped away. Most of us need to re-surrender our lives and come back to Christ as the driving force in both our life and our lifestyle. If you've been suffering from the sin of partial surrender, Revelation 3, Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea, gives us the way back. Far too often we have pursued the God we want rather than surrendering to the God who is. We are living in Laodicea. There the Apostle John writes, same writer as our gospel. He gives us the words of Jesus to this church. So that you may be rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourselves. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Here, Jesus is offering to reestablish fellowship with lukewarm, partially surrendered, cultural Christians. He is the way back. He gives us the image, a quiet dinner with friends in their home, epitomizes fellowship. The warm, encouraging conversation that flows easily around the table symbolizes the high-water mark of fellowship. And Christ picks this very symbol to express what happens when we repent and open the door of our heart and re-surrender to him. At that time, Jesus says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And that is a great privilege and a great opportunity. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, far too often our lives, my life resembles Larry and Carol. That I'm just a Christian culturally. And I haven't surrendered fully that I'm lukewarm. And Lord, I think that most of us understand that and at one time or another have been there. So we pray that your word will do its work in our life, that your spirit would be active in our life, giving us the love for Jesus that we often lack. Help us to follow him To think his thoughts. To look at things in a way that is pleasing to him. We're probably not going to do it. Apart from your spirit. So I pray as always. That your spirit would work in us. That Jesus. Would be first and foremost. In our words and our thoughts, and our actions, that this would happen in a process over our life, that at the end, we would be good and faithful servants. Do this for us. Do this among us. Do this in us. If need be, do this in spite of us. Make us people fully surrendered.